Hiya, my name's Thomas. I'm a filmmaker in the making and I hope to one day be working in industry. I write, direct and produce short films and I'm currently making my first animated project. During these crazy times, I had the absolute privilege of talking to James Bond director John Glenn. Before chatting with him, I rewatched his films and read his book For My Eyes Only, a fantastic account of his adventures starting in the film industry at the age of 14. He went up the editing department and over to working on directing big titles such as Licence to Kill, The Living Daylights and Octopussy. John holds the record for directing the most Bond films, which is five, which he made during the 1980s. I recommend it as a solid read. A quick special thanks to my lovely godmother Corin, who got me in touch with John as their old family friends. I found John to be incredibly insightful and thoroughly enjoyed hearing his stories and advice. It seems quite common in the industry for someone to move from the editing department into the directing role. I was wondering what you thought equipped uh, editors to be able to make that jump. Well, you know, editors, I mean, that's a very creative process anyway, the editing side. And uh, I, I, I performed all the various, uh, it took me forever. I mean, I, was, I started when I was 14 years old um, and I went into the editing department when I was 15 or 16 and, and I went through every stage of it, it being an assistant. And in those days, the editors were like uh, held in such great esteem that um, you weren't really allowed to go into their room where they were editing. Uh, oh, wow. The assistants will keep you out, you know. Uh, there was a bit of a mystique about editing in those days. It was like, um, you know, the editors were very, what's the word I'm looking for? They they were a bit, little bit worried that um, that if, if they showed you how to do it, they'd be out of a job themselves, you know what I mean? Oh, right, so, yes. Yeah, I see. <laughs> I mean, there was this great mystique, and these guys used to come in at 11 o'clock in the morning, and work for three or four hours and then go off at four o'clock. Um, a lot of them did. And, you know, I used to think myself, well, how can they... I mean, the thing is that in those days, they'd only, the director would only do about eight shots a day. At maximum, there'd probably be four shots. And sometimes they'd do two days rehearsing one big scene, you know. Mm. And so the whole pace of filming was so different. And uh, there was a lot of mystique about it, you know, and, and the assistants never really got an opportunity to practice. You know, you need to practice because you're going to make mistakes. You know, you, you, everyone does. Whatever business you're in, you're going to make cock-ups all along the, along the line. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the way you learn. Course, and yeah. when you're young and starting out, you get away with it because people forgive you. You know, they say, oh, yeah, he's a young chap, he'll learn, you know. But... Trouble is, everyone now is, goes to uni, and then you go into, you know, film schools, and you go into the time you you get into the position where you can actually be a director. Uh, you, you're almost too old, you know. It's like you know you're starting out, not like I started out at fourteen. You're starting out about twenty-five, you know. Yeah. So it's a lot of time to make up, isn't it? I I used to think myself. If I don't make it by the time I'm 35 or 40, you're never going to make it, you know? It's like mm. it's like your creative years, you know, where your your brain is, you've got all these sort of original thoughts. and But when you get older, you kind of live on your reputation and your experience, of course. Um, 
you know, we used to get directors who were 70 years of age, you know. I mean, Hitchcock was still directing when he was about 85 or something. And I remember working at Shepparton, and um, some of my assistants said to me, he said, this is when I was editing, he said, oh, let's go walk out on the lot. He said, uh, Hitchcock's out there filming, you know. So I went out there, and I sort of watched what was going on. And uh, Hitchcock was pretty infirm, quite honestly. And uh, he was sitting in his car. Do you know, he never, he didn't even get out of his car. He sat in the back seat and he said to the camera, he put his hands up to his face by his chin and by his forehead. He said, give me one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, he was, he, he was uh, such a character. I mean, he, he was, I mean, he's reckoned to be like one of the great filmmakers, isn't he? Yeah. But, um, yeah, he, he, he was quite, um, uh, slapdash, really, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, slapdash isn't the right word, but he was so experienced, and there was no bullshit. You know, I mean, I hate to see that. I, all, I, I was when I was editing, I worked with a few guys who were one or two of the directors were full of bloody bullshit. You know, and you, you listen, you try and understand what they're trying to say to you, and all you do, you think yourself. What the hell is he on about? You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's 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 bullshit if people don't know what they're doing. They just, I mean, there is a, an element where you have to sort of bullshit your way along a bit. You know, when you're, I mean, Lewis Gilbert. You remember him? He's one of the best directors. Mm-hmm. Think the Bismarck. Oh, he did lots and lots of films. And he did three James Bond films. Um, okay. You only lived twice was his first one, and he did. Uh, Spider of Love Me, which is one of the best James Bond films. And he did Moonraker. Right, and of course, yeah. I followed him in. I got promoted from being editor and second unit director, mainly because uh, I, I, I went and shot the ski parachute jump and the, the chase sequence at the beginning of Spider Love Me. Mm, yes, I and, uh, that in your book. Yeah, and mm. Covey Broccoli, you know, I didn't realise it at the time, but. Uh, uh, when it was his favourite scene of all his films, and uh, uh, I didn't realise it, but he'd already earmarked me as director, you know, mainly on that. But uh, I'd known him for a long time, and they gave me the chance, and they were very brave, you know. How nice to be scouted by Alfred Broccoli. I was going to ask about, yeah. um, because I'm quite interested in the director-producer uh, relationship. Um, yeah. And uh, obviously, you, you worked with Cubby, and I was just wondering how much did Cubby, as your producer, influence your creative decisions? Well, I think mainly it was on the pre-production. You know, it's the time. It's the time when it's what we call the cheap time. It's when you you're writing the script, and you you've got a couple of writers working on it. Sometimes you'd fire the writer and get another writer in. And uh, you collaborate with the writing, the directors. So I was there from the blank page, actually, all the way through on all my films, uh, certainly all my Bond films. And, um, you know, we, we'd have these meetings with Dick Maybaum, who was one of the writers, and uh, we'd have arguments about how, what the, how the scene should go. And, okay, yeah. and then they come to an action scene and they say, OK, John, over to you. <laughs> And I would be sent off to a room and, and to actually write the action scenes. 
and uh, they would take my they would take my uh, pictures that I drew and everything else. So they uh, they take that and they incorporate it in the script. I mean, exactly verbatim, you know. And so you you did have a that influence on the script. Oh, absolutely! I was there from day one on the script, and uh, you know I spent time, and then I was going off on recce's, and I'd come back. Uh, I'd go on the recce with Michael Wilson, who was the associate producer then, and uh, we'd go off. There's just the two of us. Sometimes we'd have the production designer with us, and we'd go off to Greece or somewhere, and we'd go round to all the. I'd go. First thing I used to do was go to the tourist shop and get the local postcards. You know, all the, the beautiful sites are always postcards of this scene and that scene. And you look at it and you think, oh, that, that's be fantastic. Like in Corfu, there was this picture of uh, Mouse Island, you know. Uh, and uh, I said, oh, I've got to use that in the film. So, you know, <laughs> we would straighten it and wreck it, Mouse Island. I mean, it cuts, um, the beauty of it is it... it it enables you to get round the place in about three days, you know, whereas normally you'd spend weeks trying to find the locations. I used to go and, go and look at the, for the postcards and find the postcards and then find out where they, these places well, were. Yeah, what a great way of doing it, kind of cut out the... Uh... Yeah, oh, it's a good short, it's a good shortcut. Yeah. And uh, when I was on working on TV series, when I was editor, um, you know, I used to have to find, like, they couldn't afford to go to location to uh, Italy, you know, to see the um, Ponte Vecchio Bridge, you know. It would, and uh, a friend of mine was going out there on holiday. I said, oh, bring me back a postcard of the Ponte Vecchio Bridge. We need it for the film. So you <laughs> pull the postcard and I photograph the postcard and use it in, in the TV series. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow, that's it. That's I mean, just all the, you know, you do that on television in those days. It was a little screen and quality wasn't that good because it's changed now. Yeah, you get away with it. It's much improved. Yeah. But, you know, you, 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 you learn little tricks how to, you know, how to get by on something and, there's always a way. There's always a way. And what you have to be is flexible. I mean, you've got in your own mind what you're trying to achieve. And, uh, you know, if everything go, goes against you, it starts to rain and it's dark and the cameraman says, you know, shall we go, bus? Shall we cancel the crowd? Uh, you know, all that sort of stuff goes on. So you get all those pressures. Mm, and how, how did you deal with that? There's always something you can shoot, even if you just rehearse something, it's worth doing. But the moment they start playing football, you're in trouble <laughs> so really? as a director because you lose it, you lost it. You know what I mean? So you keep everyone working. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a good trick. No, it's a, there's always something you can do, even if you have to do inserts. I mean. Uh, when I first got the break to do on a Magister's Secret Service or second unit director, um, I was sent out to, to shoot the, the Bob's Run sequence. That was my brief. And uh, it was a great break for me. I mean, it was, I, suddenly I was like, I was working on the Italian job as I'm doing dialogues. And uh, suddenly I got this call from Peter Hunt. The next thing I know, I was in Switzerland as <laughs> second unit director with a wonderful crew and cast and everything else and it was a, a terrific break you know and 
on test. You know, I had to produce uh, the goods. So, you know, what a wonderful opportunity that was. And Peter Hunt, he, he was an editor, and this was his big break as um, a director on the Majesty's Secret Service in Switzerland. Mm. And uh, he was way behind schedule. I mean, his second unit director that he'd chosen originally uh, was a bit, you know, the weather was bad and the snow didn't come. And they all went, they all started sitting in the hotel and not even bothering to go on the set, you know. And everything, everyone was flown up onto the mountain by helicopter. So it was a very expensive operation. And Cubby came out one day and... Uh, he, he said, where is everyone? Assumed they were up on the mountain on the side. So he, a, a helicopter dropped him off, and there was not a soul about all the equipment was covered up. And uh, he, he thought, well, where is everyone? And it was sunny, it was beautiful. Uh, and then he, he catched a lift back on a, a rut track thing, you know, with tracks down the mountain. Mm. He got shaken around. He was a very big man. And uh, he went into the hotel there, and they were all playing cards. Uh, and he said, why aren't you out shooting? And I said, oh. And they got mountain sickness, you know. It's like if people if people are allowed to... If you don't keep everyone busy and occupied, they, they sort of lose it, you know. They just get lazy, and they don't bother, you know. They say, oh, you know. So it's very important to keep everyone occupied. And it was wonderful with Roger Moore when I was working with Roger Moore because Roger was such a funny man. He he was cracking jokes all day long on the set. And I I allowed an extra half an hour a day for Roger's pranks and jokes and that. But it was worthwhile because it kept the the morale of the crew up. You know, they were really up. They just loved coming. They couldn't wait to get to work. Louis doesn't seem to think he's being directed properly. 
<laughs> he was so he was so amazed by our attitude on the set. You know, he was also laid back and everything else. So uh, we had this discussion, and uh, at the end of it, Cubby said, "Well, he said, Louis, get back to work." He said, "With Johnny, so I've got absolute faith in him." And he said, "And after this film, you'll probably go back to working on the Swamp Thing." A, TV, a crappy TV series he was on in America. So it was a, you know, he had been a big, big star, Louis, and he couldn't cope with not not being quite the big star anymore, you know. Oh, right. So you yeah. have all these different personalities you come up against, and you have to, I mean, Marlon Brando, when I was directing Marlon Brando, well, you can't direct Marlon Brando, let's face it, but uh, <laughs> I was terrified when, when, uh, the first day on the set, and I'd heard all these stories about Marlon Brando not turning up, you know, and stuff, and I've got tight schedule. So I, you have to be a bit clever, really, I think, on your feet, because I, I got a good friend of mine, an actor, uh, I knew very well, and I, I, I created a new part as as uh, Talking Marders, that was who Marlon Brando was playing, uh, I, I invented an assistant for him, and my, my feeling was if if he doesn't turn up, I'll shoot the scene with this other guy. Right, you know I mean? so you had a backup plan. I had a backup plan, and sure enough, first day didn't turn up. So I carried. I had all the other actors there, and they're all well-known actors, you know, Tom uh, and all. No end of them there. The, you know, cast of hundreds. So I just carried on and shot the scene with this other guy, but I kept him in the corner, of the, in it, separate from everyone else. And uh, he he delivered all my long's lines. You see, it didn't take five seconds for that story to get back to his hotel room. These lines were being given to another actor, and he said he was there next morning, first thing, ready to go. <laughs> you know. Oh, so I just reshot those, just put him in that corner. I got the other guy, uh, and and uh, I've just reshot that part of the scene. But uh, that's what you have to do. Uh, that works like a magic with actors. They're like most of them are like children, you know. They, you have to treat them like kids. They're spoiled brats. We <laughs> used to say, "Don't turn your nose at him. He's an actor, <laughs> for God's sake." Yeah. <laughs> You know, they, they get famous, uh, you know, they get uh, applauded and people, they, they, they surround themselves with sick of hands, you know, giving them, bolstering up their courage all the time. And uh, you can't, they can't get, you know, they, they get in their contract, they've got their own hairdresser, they've got their own makeup artist, they've got their own dresser. Mm. And in the end, you, you know, these people are a pain in the ass, you know, because they... I don't know, they, they work against you in a way. Um, so you, you have to cope with those problems, you know, with, with actors. Uh, most of the actors, you know, are wonderful and they contribute so much. Um, but you do get the odd ones who are a bit of a pain in the ass. You know, they listen to they listen to too many people, you know. Right. And I remember I remember you saying in your book, you, you, you mentioned that you, you were quite relaxed about crew members coming in and watching the rushes until suddenly That's s- right. their opinions were going back to the actors. And well, this, this is it. I, yeah, I, I was very free and easy. 
I used to let, you know, all the office girls come in and see the rushes and everyone else. You know, anyone who was vaguely connected with the movie. Um, not like it is today now. It's uh, it's like top security now with the Disney people. You, you know, because with mobile phones, everyone's got a camera and they sell those pictures. People do, don't they? And, yeah. uh, so you can't do it today. But we were very relaxed. And, uh, and then one day... Um, Timothy Dalton came up to me and he said, I was a bit worried about that scene today. One of the office girls said I wasn't kissing properly or something. I said, right, that's it. <laughs> on yeah. the call sheet. No more. No more office girls in to see the rushes. I'm sorry. Because, they, yeah. they, you know, you think yourself, you want to engage all these people and you're a team, you know, and you want to treat everyone well. And then sometimes you get one person who's a stupid cow who takes it in herself to start flattered to be able to talk to the actor, the main actor, and starts criticising him. And what does she know? You know. So um, I put a stop to that and uh, rather changed my my opinion of <laughs> who came to rushes. I said, in future, it'll only be the key personnel who come. I don't mm. want any of that. And it's not really a very good idea if the actors go and see themselves, quite honestly. But, um, you know, it's better that they carry that thing in their head because it's like any of us, really. I mean, you see ourselves up there on the screen. It's not very comforting, is it? <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine. Working with such a big franchise as James Bond, I was wondering yeah. how much creative freedom you had when working on them, when it, when it's already got an established kind of style? Well, you, I think you have to keep, be true to the Fleming character, you know, as, as best you can. You know, I mean, you have to adapt, depending on the actor. I mean, no one could ever believe Roger Moore could kill anyone, let's face it. I mean, Roger was... It wasn't his style, was it? He wasn't like Sean. Sean, you could imagine him strangling someone, you know. Yeah. But um, I don't think you could imagine Roger doing that. So you have to adapt, you know, to the actor to a degree. Uh, but at the same time, you, you've got the Fleming, the original Fleming character in the back of your mind. And yeah. Certain, and they have stock actors, don't they? Uh, I mean, M and Money Penny and all these people are you have those, although you keep changing those as well. Um, but I think the public are always looking forward to seeing a new Bond, yeah. see how he performs. Uh, George didn't do very well, I don't think, in his first outing. I mean, yeah, he was a good-looking guy and what have you, but he was a bit arrogant. Right. And uh, he had a fantastic actress in Diana Reid. And then they fell out. And she was trying to help him all the time, and yeah, he got so arrogant. And I suppose it was basically an inferiority complex. He must have felt he must have felt a bit insecure, you know, taking on that role. Yeah. Uh, and um, he fell out with Peter. He fell out with everyone. Oh, and I remember uh, we were doing uh, music on on the Magisters at uh, CTS, you know, the Beatles, placing. Um, uh, St. John's Wood, and um, I was in the in the back there while they were recording music, and this person walked in off the street. I thought it was a tramp. You know, he came in and he kept looking over at me and grinning and all that, and it took me a while to realise it was George Lazenby. 
he'd grown this huge unkempt beard <laughs> and we were about just about to open the film you know we were about three weeks away from the premiere or something and uh, he was being photographed all around town with this terrible beard cubby was pissed off he really was oh really you know you you expect your leading actor to be you know, smart and you know be james bond sell, you know, uh, sell it a bit not not act like a slob you know mm. this is actors you know i tell you well he wasn't even an actor he was a model Right. So we did all kinds of tricks, you know, revoiced him with George Baker and all sorts of stuff to try and improve his performance. But uh, anyway, he's, he's, you know, I see him now and again. And he's all right now, George, actually. He's, he made a quite a good film, not too bad, not too long ago, about becoming James Bond. I think it's on the, you can pick it up on the internet, I think. Oh, somewhere. really? I, I hadn't heard of that. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, becoming James Bond. And it's really the story of how he got the job, you know, and buggered it up, basically. <laughs> <laughs> oh, interesting. I mean, that is, that is the thing. You, you've always got to keep your feet on the ground, you know. Mm. Um, it's so easy to get carried away. You've always got to think to yourself, you know, I want this to continue sort of thing. And uh, Yeah, be your best foot forward. Be, be nice to, no, be nice to everyone. There's no point in making enemies. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you're, you're, you know, I remember Alan was this good friend of mine, this cameraman. He was also, he was also a great help to me because he was very experienced and what have you. And when I got a bit angry about something that went wrong on a set or so forth, I'd not shown it. And Alan would come over to me and say, count, count 10, John. Counting, and that's very good advice, you know. Just pause and yeah, counting and calm down, you know, because it's got to be fun, you know, what you're doing, and you do. You are going to get situations where where someone is bloody useless, you know, that you're working with, and that. And Alan would say to me, he said, John, if they're all as clever as you, they'd all be earning the big bucks, you know. <laughs> When, when assigned as the director to a film, what's the first thing you do when you're handed the script, obviously aside from reading it? Well, you're in a bit of a daze, quite honestly. Um, but this is way before you're, in, you know, you're six months away from shooting. So you are gradually... Uh, I mean, my attitude was I have to make this film in my image. You know what I mean? I, I have to do put my style onto this film i have to uh, maybe i'm a, being a bit uh, you know i mean i was a great fan of of a lot of the silent films you know a lot of the um early films and the early comedies and things like that right. um the ha how, uh, harold lloyd films you know where they're up on the, the fantastic stunts um where, where the, you know they they would be crossing the trains, trains coming up, express coming up, and they would they would go across in front of the train and miss it by a hair's breadth. And it was so clever, you know, what they used to do. They used to have a, a line. They used to have a line attached to the train, which was also, through a series of pulleys, used to go around and it was also pulling the car across the front of the train so they could actually make it as tight as they could 
and then start back, and then the, everything would go together, and you knew that it would miss the car, even if it was only by about six feet, you know. Right, yeah. And uh, those sort of tricks, we used to use them all the time, and they're fantastic ways to do things. Um, I mean, if you see Octopussy, do you remember Octopussy? Yeah, the one where he flies through the, um, the Through base. the hangar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean that I, I think I described it in the book. But, yeah, you um, mentioned the actress. Yeah, I didn't know how to drive, yeah. and you had to teach That's her. That's right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Funny things happen, but she was great. That kid. She she couldn't drive. Her. I mean, she came to see me, and uh, I got the uh, the accountant. as a bit of a gag, really. I said, take her out into Blackwood at Black Park. She's a beautiful girl, and uh, I said, teach her how to drive. <laughs> <laughs> The next day we were shooting and she was right close to us and all the thing. It could have been a disaster, you know, but she was very bright. I was out on the track directing her and I was saying to her, left hand down a bit, right hand down a bit, because <laughs> she was busy pulling her skirt up and that, you know. No, it's, it's fun, but, uh, you know, that, that those tricks are foreground miniatures. Uh, it's still it's still valid today, although you, you know with digital you, you you can do it in a different way. But uh, uh, in those days we didn't have digital, you see, so we mm. had to be. I think it was a lot more fun actually than it is today because you know my son is a visual effects editor, Matthew, and uh, he has to put all these scenes. You know, sometimes a hundred hundred things they stick into the scene afterwards. You know. Yeah, different and, things. I was flying across. He, he did all the Harry Potters, and and he's doing um, a couple of Disney films now. And yeah. um, it's it's it's. He said that you wouldn't like it now. It's taken a lot of the fun out of it. Yeah, because you've mentioned you know, we, that you feel like CG. You mentioned in your email to me that you feel like CGI is one of the worst things that's happened to the industry. I was I was wondering what you kind of well, your I, angle I, on I that. Think it, yeah, it's changed. I wouldn't say. I mean, I'm bound to think that way because you did it we, we had to be we had to be ingenious in the way we designed scenes and that to to achieve some fantastic results, and we we certainly did. Um, you know, and we had to be. Um, you know, the the special effects guys and that would come up with ideas, and Peter Lamont, the production designer, he was very clever. And uh, he was a great exponent, uh, as was Derek Meddings, uh, of foreground miniatures. Mm. You know, and, you know, you've got to remember the film is a two-dimensional two medium. So if you put something in the foreground, you can easily, it can, it can be, appear to be a quarter of a mile away, but in actual fact, it's quite close to the camera, a certain part of it, you know. So if you at a doorway, for instance, or an entrance to a hangar, um, you put a, you make a miniature hangar in the foreground, and if you then fly something through behind that, it appears to be going in the doorway, mainly because it's a two-dimensional medium. Yeah. Um, uh, you, you can visualise it yourself, just put an object in the foreground. Uh, it, it takes... I wouldn't attempt to do that on a first unit shoot, I would have a second unit do that because they've got to wait for the exact right lighting conditions so it matches perfectly with the background. But right. the 
end result is quite fantastic. I mean, as you see, in, in, uh, you look at uh, Octopus again, it, it looks amazing. Uh, what a cheat, you know, the way the aircraft goes into this ever-closing door, you know, and just sort of goes over, uh, drops one wing. Uh, we had a third-size model aeroplane, BDJet, and we put two wires, one through each ring, wing tip, and slid it down the wire, uh, propelled it down the wire somehow, um, Derek Millings did it. And uh, uh, I asked afterwards, how did you get the, the, the plane to actually drop a wing and go like over on its wing tip so it could get through the closing door? And he said, oh, it's quite easy as it turned out. We just cut one of the wires. And it dropped down and went appeared to go through the hangar door. Oh, wow, yeah. But, uh, and so you feel that, like that, that was sort of stuff. more kind of um, it was it was more fun to do things practically. It kind of added to the experience. Yeah, yeah. But you, you know, you can do it now digitally. You don't have to go to that extent. But uh, you don't see it the next morning. You see everything we did. We saw in rushes the next day, and you could say it worked or it didn't work. You know. Yeah. Oh, well, um, I you do it, do it five or six times, and one of them would work. You know, so, uh, it was fun. Um, and it can be fun again. It's like everything, really. I think all you youngsters are coming up. You're embracing this digital technology. And um, as I say, it's you know it's a different business in a way. You you have to wait now, and um, you have to wait to see it com- composited. You know, as opposed to where we used to do it on the day. And uh, you know the the underwater sequences we had to do dry with um, Bond and uh, Melina, because she, she had an ear infection, she didn't go underwater. But it's very difficult to photograph underwater anyway. Yeah. And um, so we, we did it dry, um, largely second unit operation, and then when we wanted to put out, insert our actors into the scene, you know, you just go close and blow their hair up with a wind machine and shoot it at... Uh, 90 frames a second, you know. Yeah, and it was very convincing. It, it works so well. And then you put the bubbles, you wind the film back and put the bubbles in where the mouths are. Yeah. You just put a little mark on the, uh, you make a cardboard thing on the eyepiece of the camera where the mouths are, and then you put a little little tank and you have a air, air blowing up where the mouths are, so it looks like, you know, you can see the bubbles going up. Oh. And to- totally convincing. <laughs> yeah, it works so well. Sometimes, sometimes you miss the mouth, but uh, you know you do several takes and it's fine. Yeah, yeah, of course. That's so anyway. I, what I just say is that it's a, a fascinating business to be in. I mean, it's, I can't think of anything mm. as as rewarding, you know, because it's creative. Uh, yeah, you, exactly. You're dealing with other people, you're dealing with a team, you're contributing. If you treat them right and encourage them in the right way, make everyone important, even the, the prop man, you know, he's, he does a fantastic job and comes up with great ideas sometimes. So, you know, it is a wonderful business. And uh, as I say, the, the technology now, digital technology enables you to do incredible things. But you, you mustn't rely on the technology so much you know it's all about ideas isn't it and being original and when you're young you can be original 
Um, you can adapt other people's ideas. Uh, you can take something that's been done in other films and do a, do a different slant on it, you know? Yeah. Um, I always used to say everyone's used to seeing uh, aeroplanes flying over cars, but when you do the reverse, you have a car flying over an aeroplane. It, it creates a, a, a humour straight away, you know? So you, you got that, you try and get the humour. Humour's so important in a film. And you've got to really, particularly a bomb film, you've got to, you know, try and find all these things that are funny, make people laugh. You excite them. The, the perfect scenario is where you have an exciting scene and then you have something funny and then uh, that's incredible that you get such a... Because people release all their um, excitement. Something that really fascinated me in your... Um, in your book was there was quite a high body count and it, in particular uh, cameramen who lost their lives on on set from doing such daring stunts you mentioned one one guy fell out of a helicopter from taking off his harness to get the right angle yeah it wasn't it wasn't yeah it wasn't on my film it was Johnny Jordan he was a, a legendary um, very brilliant cameraman Mm. And uh, he was—he lost his leg on the bomb film in um, *You Only Live Twice*, that Lewis Gilbert directed in Japan. And he was filming from a, a helicopter, and uh, the t- two helicopters got too close together and chopped his leg off. Oh wow! Well, it was just hanging there like limp, and he stay, had to stay there while they they flew flew him straight into the hospital, and uh, they had to amputate his leg. But the on the um, on the Majesty's Secret Service, I used to tuck him into the nose of the bob gun because uh, he'd take his leg off and he could squeeze him into the nose. Oh, wow. Easy, on the what's name. But uh, he was working on a, a film in America and um, he was filming from a B-29 and they had the door off and uh, he was sort of strapped in and um, he was trying to get these shots from the doorway and he found it with his one leg you know being one legged he, he just found it so difficult and quite unwisely he he took the strap safety strap off because it was hindering him and uh, suddenly the aeroplane had a near miss and the pilot had to dive out of the way and he became weightless and he just floated out of the door over the Gulf of Mexico and his assistant I spoke to said to me after, he said, it was an amazing, amazing thing. He said, he just floated out the door. Mm. And I bet you he was filming all the way down. But yeah. I don't think they ever found his body. That's so sad. Do, do you think, do you think yeah. the industry kind of like is a lot safer now? Or do you think that was, do you think that was more common back then? I think it was always, I think the industry, I mean, they have been famous. Stories. I mean, we we had accident on one of my films, the second unit. We lost a guy in Italy uh, on a bob run scene, the second unit. Mm. And I was working in the cutting room at the time. When he was, I got, the producer came over to me and he said, "Accident, bad accident on the uh, in Cortina on the bob run." He said, four injured, one dead, and one seriously ill." You know, I said, "Oh my God, what oh, happened?" Goodness, yeah. Well, Willie Bogner was the uh, director cameraman and um, they, the, the Italians arrested him 
uh, I never did see the film. I didn't want to see it particularly of the accident. Mm. Um, but um, they, 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 the, the Italians, uh, you know, coloured the film, put it under lock and key, uh, and I never did see it. But um, you know, it was, that was unfortunate. Yeah. And Martin Grace on Octopussy, he had a bad accident on the train. He was clambering outside the train from one carriage to another, and uh, they were filming from a helicopter, again, a second unit operation. And um, it went further than they anticipated, and there was an obstruction, a piece of metal, jagged metal sticking out, and uh, caught him in the groin. Oh, and uh, he hung on until the train stopped. But he was very seriously ill. I don't think he ever quite recovered. But we had a very good safety record. I mean, you know, we were very careful and we didn't take chances. Yeah. You know, we, we tried to envisage every possible scenario where things could go wrong. But they do occasionally. It's, it, you know, it's. I suppose the great thing about digital now is that you don't need to put people in such dangerous positions. Yeah, I don't that's know. true. That's that. Pray for it. Mm. Great. Well, John, I've really enjoyed anyway, talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, good, um, good, look with, good look, luck with your career. I look forward to uh, seeing some of your work. Thank you so much. Yeah, really appreciate What's your surname? Uh, Stanimeros. It's a Greek, Greek surname. Greek, is it? Oh, right, okay. Yeah. I'll make a note of that. Thank you, yeah. Your name will be up in light one of these days, I expect. Oh, thank, <laughs> thanks, John. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much to John for chatting with me. I would also like to quickly mention that I'm working on an animated pilot with my production company, Pavilion State. If you're interested in the work that I do and the work I do with others, please go check that out on Instagram at Pavilion State Official. All the best.